Hello. 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 Uh, welcome to Conway Hall's Thinking on Sunday. My name's Carmen de Cruz. I'm one of the trustees here. And it's an absolute honour and pleasure to welcome you all here today. Um, as I was just saying to Gavin, Conway Hall has a very long and rich history of uh, free thinking, uh, radical thinking and freedom of speech. So I hope you've had a chance to look at the exhibition that's out in the corridor at the moment. Um, it's all material from our archives. So it's really quite exciting. And um, I just feel it adds to the beauty and rich history of this place. Um, so for those of you who haven't been to Thinking on Sunday before, um, or for those of you who are yet to become a member, I would be remiss of my duties um, if I didn't recommend you all do join. It costs £35 a year and it helps keep events, events like this going. Um, these talks really, really are the highlight of my week. They're, they're so wonderful. Members get to come here for free. You also get discounts on other events throughout the year. So if you, if you can make it to Holborn often, you really do make your money back within a few weeks. Um, so uh, for those of you who are new, welcome to Thinking on Sunday. Um, the format is that we have a talk that lasts for about um, 30 to 40 minutes, then a 15-minute break. Oh, sorry, that's my chair. Um, a 15-minute break. Um, please do help yourself to tea and coffee um, out the front. That when I last checked a few minutes ago, there still were some biscuits left. Um, so uh, please do help yourself, it's there to be enjoyed. Um, and then after that, uh, we'll have a Q&A. Uh, you can also buy a copy of Gavin's book. Um, his publisher's uh, having some train issues, but we'll be here as soon as possible. Um, you can buy the book for less than £10. They'll be taking cash or card, and Gavin will also be able to sign it for you as well. So I think that's all the housekeeping. Uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce Gavin Esler. Um, Gavin is a journalist, TV presenter and author. He was a main presenter of the BBC current affairs show Newsnight for 12 years until 2014. Since then, he's been a public speaker, political commentator and journalist and the Chancellor of the University of Kent. In 2019, he stood for Change UK in the European Parliament elections. Please, can you give a nice warm Conway Hall welcome to Gavin? Thank you very much. It's a great honour to be here in a place which symbolised many discussions and many disputes, but symbolised one thing. People in this country are not prepared to put up with doing what they're told if they don't agree. And I'm afraid I'm in that category too. Uh, some more good news. You're all here. You know, we could all be out in the sunshine today doing something else, and maybe some of you will leave when I've uh, put that thought in your head. But we're all here, I think, for the same reason, which is that we care about this country, we want to take our patriotism back, and we want the country to go on a, a better path than it's been going on the past two or three years. And some other good news. Uh, the, the, the person who is uh, apparently our prime minister has been describing himself today as the incredible Hulk. I think this is very good news because the word incredible means absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> and I think we're getting somewhere with him. It's beginning to percolate that nobody trusts him. Um, uh, look, uh, Brexit began with a lie on a bus, and perhaps it will end with a lie to Her Majesty the Queen. Of course, he didn't lie to the Queen, at least that's what he told the BBC. But if you did lie to the Queen, would you then tell the truth to the BBC? I don't know. I suspect there may be something going on here. And it's not just me. It's the Court of Session in Edinburgh. Um, it is the European Union. The EU27 clearly don't believe that we are negotiating in good faith, that there's some fantastic new plan that nobody has thought of, or even that we're 
fiddling around with the uh, current plan of the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May introduced. The Shadow Chancellor, John MacDonald, has made it clear he does not believe the Prime Minister. The former Chancellor, Philip Hammond, has made it clear he does not believe the Prime Minister. And I am perfectly happy to make it clear I do not believe the Prime Minister. Uh, the title of the book is Brexit Without the Bullshit, and I was worried about the title for a couple of reasons. That was my working title because I thought, you know, let's get rid of all the bullshit uh, and see what's left. And I thought, well, maybe there'll be nothing. Maybe there's absolutely <laughs> empty pages. But I promise you there is quite a lot because Brexit means changing just about everything that we value in our lives, and I'll get them to that in a minute. Um, uh, it seems to me that the biggest problem we face in Britain today isn't even Brexit. It is the normalization of lying in our public life. It is the fact that people get away with it and even get on by doing it. And it is something, I, I, I'm a very big fan of the United States, but this is an American Trump land import that I think we could do without. And to give you one example of that, look what happens if you commit the biggest sin in British public life, which is to tell the truth. Sir Kim Darroch, a great public servant, our former, unfortunately, ambassador to the United States, told the truth, which is that we all know the Trump administration is fundamentally dysfunctional, and he had to resign over that. So when it comes to Brexit, I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to know what would it actually look like. Not the Brexit you may have voted for or may have thought you were voting for, because frankly, I had no idea what Brexit would look like when I voted in 2016. And I don't think anybody else did either, including those who most assiduously advocated it. And if you don't believe the normalization of lies is just about everywhere, let me give you just a couple of almost trivial examples, but they do show where we're going. Uh, when I was campaigning in the European election, my four weeks that didn't change the world, but hey, I had a go, um, I, I was campaigning in Argyle Street, just off Oxford Street, and I was that really annoying person handing out leaflets. And actually, most people took them because like you and like me, they woke up to the fact that if we don't do something, we're going to be in, in big trouble. One lady came up to me, she was about 30, and she, was, she said to me, I'm not going to vote for you, I'm going to vote for Nigel Farage. And I said, do you mind me asking why? And she said, yes, because the European Union is completely undemocratic. So I said, you're voting in a European election for somebody who's been a member of the European Parliament for 20 years. Would you tell me which are the bits that are most undemocratic about that? There was a long pause. Uh, and then she said, I hadn't quite thought about it that way. Now. She hadn't thought about it because she's, for 20 years or 10 years or whatever, she's been reading the same nonsense that we have been reading about bent bananas and banning sausages and prawn, crocker, uh, prawn cocktail flavored crisps are going to be banned by the EU, many of which were actually originated in the mind of the Incredible Hulk who's now in Downing Street. <laughs> but it's very difficult to roll back that tide but we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to try to do it, which is why I wanted a book which is basically about the facts of what, what it will look like. And the, there was another strange... This is not my first book. I've written uh, five uh, novels and a couple of other non-fiction books, but this is the first book I've ever written that was reviewed before Martin, the publisher, who'll be here in a minute, um, ever sent out any copies. 
That's really weird, isn't it? On Amazon, I mean, I usually buy from bookshops and things, but if you buy from Amazon, uh, you'll see there's some reviews. And one review came in before the person who wrote the review could possibly have read the book because we hadn't sent it out. I would like to read you the review because I rather like it. Dangerous propaganda in an illiterate package is the headline. <laughs> There is every chance this assembly of extremist fantasies will prove of adequate sophistication to appeal to today's rabid left-wing extremist. That's you lot, by the way. Um, to the even slightly educated, it will appear too crass and vulgar to bear. This book is a product of a man who projects his fantasies over reality almost to the degree of psychosis. And that's me. Um, not fake news, fake reviews. But the normalization of lying in our public life has gone from Downing Street to um, adverts I've seen recently badged by the, Her Majesty's Treasury telling us what the great benefits we'll now be able to have duty-free booze if we go across the channel. Didn't actually mention that because the pound has gone down so much, we'll be paying for that. Uh, we will have, uh, I'll get on to it, uh, have to have a visa waiver. The EU is saying that British citizens, from a th that we're from a third country, will need a visa waiver just to go on a booze cruise to France and so on. But the lying has gone all the way from there to some anonymous person on Amazon. Facts are enlightenment values. Facts and science, medical science in particular, uh, are part of what we are today, why we are a brainy Britain, why we're a good culture, fundamentally. But if we start denying them or, or allowing people to get away with lying about them, we are in real trouble, I would suggest, even bigger than Brexit itself. If the people who lied to us about Brexit get their way, they will find something else to lie about in future, I suspect, about the NHS, I suspect about uh, jobs and other things. Uh, an Ipsos Mori poll showed that 70% of British people did not believe the Prime Minister when he said he was proroguing Parliament to get on with his exciting crime and health agenda. I suspect some of the 70% are here today. Um, so, my, let's get on to some facts. My top tip, first of all, which many of you will know, is that Brexit is not an event. If it happens on October the 31st, by November the 1st, it will still be going on, and I would suggest it will be going on for years. Brexit is not an event, it's a process. The process begins in November, and we will have at least five years to negotiate trade deals. Trade deals with the United States are very, very complicated. Fact one, leaving the European Union will change just about everything that we take for granted in our lives. I mean, compared to Boris Johnson, Margaret Thatcher was an underachiever. What did she do? I mean, all she did was she defeated the miners, neutralized trade union power, privatized state assets, including council houses, revitalized the city of London, helped win the Cold War, and defeated the Argentine junta. Now, not all of these things you may agree with, but it seemed quite a lot of things to me. But Boris Johnson is engaged on something much, much greater. He is rewriting all of the core of our foreign economic and trade policies simultaneously. He is changing, if Brexit goes through, particularly if it's a no-deal Brexit, how we get the food we eat, the vets we employ, our jobs and invest investments, our universities and soft power, and he may also be destroying both the Union of the United Kingdom and the Conservative Party. Destroying the Conservative Party may be something you will greet with equanimity, I'm not sure. 
our food supplies, just, just to take one example, there's a lot more in the book, but this is mostly from open sources, but also from people I've talked to who are experts in the field, because I believe in experts. I think they're rather a good thing. 95% um, of slaughterhouse vets in Britain are EU 27 nationals. So if you eat meat, not all of us do, but if you eat meat, your meat is certified 95% of the time by someone who is not a British national. 1% of our seasonal fruit pickers in the UK are believed to be British. 1%. It's not a very attractive job. It's low paid. We get a lot of people from uh, Romania and the, uh, and the East, Eastern Europe. And in fact, before 2004, and these new accession countries came in, British farmers had largely stopped growing some labor-intensive crops, including asparagus, because they couldn't get any of us to pick it except people coming in. And in terms of trade deals, you know, a lot has been made about chlorinated chicken. I, I've eaten chlorinated chicken. I lived in America for eight years. It actually doesn't do you any harm. It's a terrible way of bringing up chickens, though, because what it is about is uh, putting right all the bugs that are on the chicken, salmonella and other things, because you haven't been very good uh, animal husbandry. It's not been a very good way of bringing them up. They're in filth. We don't do that here. That's, that's fine. But I would suggest you concentrate on something else. This is just one or two symbols. One is ractopamine in pork. Now, most of us don't, may not even eat pork, but what's important here is that more than 100 countries worldwide do not take American pork. Russia and China do not take American pork. The EU doesn't take American pork. Why don't they? Because there's ractopamine in it. Now, what's interesting about that is that the US trade representative is the person who will negotiate with the British government about a future trade deal. Not Donald Trump. He may be long gone by then. This will take years. But to give you an example of how American politics works in producing a trade deal, the US Trade Representative, and you can Google it, you can find the written extracts from the hearings, you can see some of it on um, YouTube. The US Trade Representative holds open hearings where interested parties can come along and say, if there's a trade deal with the United Kingdom, this is what we want. And there's lots of them. Pharmaceuticals, I'm not going to go into that, but you can imagine what they want. They essentially want the end to the NHS and they want full access and American pricing. But pork, there's 60,000 pork producers in the United States, and they are members of the Pork Producers Association, who are a lobby group. They were lobbying the US Trade Representative, and they said to, at the very opening statement from them, they said, we are represented in 42 states. 42 out of 50 states means that 84 out of 100 members of the US Senate will listen to the US pork lobby. If they want ractopamine in pork, Liz Truss, whom we undoubtedly trust to negotiate a very tough deal, when she or her successor, because they don't seem to last very long in that job, uh, goes to the United States, they will be dealing with the US Trade Representative, and they will also be dealing with members of Congress who have a vested interest in opening our markets to something that we regard now as inedible. I would just leave that one with you. And antibiotics in beef. Our dear Prime Minister was in Aberdeen recently, and when he was in Aber Aberdeenshire, uh, uh, he said that there'll be no problem, we'll be able to sell British beef to the Americans, but they won't possibly expect to be able to sell American beef to us. I beg to differ on that. And Jim O'Neill 
formerly Lord O'Neill of Goldman Sachs, was asked to do a report upon, about our overuse of antibiotics. What can we do about antibiotic resistance? Something we should all be very worried about. And Jim O'Neill pointed out uh, in his report, which I quote in the book, in US farms, antibiotics are handed out like sweets. 70% of antibiotic use in the United States is for farm animals, not for humans. And it persists in the meat. If you want that, I tell you, chlorinated chicken is the good stuff. So everything from little things like international driving per permits, which you may, we may need, I hope we don't. I mean, common sense could break out all over. But at the moment, we may need international driving permits just to go to France or Spain. And actually, the one you need for France is different from the one you need from Spain. If you go to the post office, they'll, they'll tell you. Um, visa waiver system. Uh, after Brexit, Jean-Claude Juncker's spokeswoman said, ETIAS will apply to the UK as a third country post-Brexit. Seven euros for a three-year visa waiver. It's like a visa, but only with the word wa waiver attached. Something we don't even need to think about now. And then there'll be the queues and all that other stuff. Reciprocity. I've been talking quite a bit with, uh, I'm going off to Gibraltar shortly, where they're extremely worried. And so are those British, as they ca call themselves, expatriates, or as we would call them, migrants, who have gone to the south of Spain to live. And good luck to them, except they're discovering that their health care, they're, they're covered under something called S1, and if there's reciprocity, if they don't get, if uh, EU 27 citizens don't get health care here, they won't get health care over there. And as a guy who works, a journalist from El País put it to me very bluntly, he said, we send you our young people to Britain to get work. You send you our, your older people to Spain to die. So, the big things that will change, the United Kingdom. I mean, every one of the 32 electoral districts in Scotland voted to remain. Every one of them. Northern Ireland voted to remain. I've just come back from Scotland. I was at the Edinburgh Book Festival at the end of uh, August. And uh, I have to tell you that old friends of mine, I grew up in Edinburgh, old friends of mine who uh, I knew were always unionists and I knew voted no in 2014 to independence have changed their minds. Now, that's an anecdote. It's not, a, it's not a statistic. It's an anecdote. But if you look at the way the opinion polls are going, there and in Northern Ireland, where our Lord Ashcroft poll suggests that for the first time more people are prepared to contemplate a united Ireland than not. So things are changing. And this Prime Minister of ours, who leads the Conservative and Unionist Party, may be the one who will break up the union. Worst of all for me, actually, I mean, there will be huge disruption to all kinds of things. But I really dislike the way our country is being portrayed around the world as some kind of joke. I really, really resent it, because I don't think we are. I'm amazed how, how good we are at so many things, including, you might not like this, the tube. The tube is amazing, I think. London tube is extraordinary. Uh, to get us all to work in the mornings in this city is fantastic. It's not great, but it's pretty, I can't think of anything better for a big city like this. We have a reputation, our universities have a reputation around the world so great that the current president of Iran, Mr. Rouhani, went to Glasgow Caledonian University. As we all know, Bill Clinton also went to university here. We attract the best and the brightest, and they go home and they say, what a great country we are. Well, they're not saying it now. In Germany, um, a very sober news magazine, rather like The Economist, described Jacob Rees-Mogg as potentially a prime minister of the United Kingdom. 
yeah, that's what I thought too. I thought that was quite funny. But then they, they also said, he is, of course, das lebende Fossil, <laughs> the living fossil. In Ireland, Boris Johnson's characterization of the border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland as being very similar to that between Islington and Camden <laughs> provokes, I mean, the stand-up comedians are still doing that one. And as somebody who's lived in Islington and Camden and also in Northern Ireland with relatives in the South, I can tell you there is no resemblance whatsoever. <laughs> Uh, also, the Northern Ireland Secretary, Karen, uh, previous one, Karen Bradley, uh, appeared puzzled that unionists and nationalists don't vote for the same people. I, I, words fail me. In the United States, the New York Times did a page and a half profile of a man they called Failing Grayling. And underneath it, when I read it, I actually thought, because they kind of laid it all out, all his glories from the time when he ruined the probation service to the time when he couldn't actually get a traffic jam to work at Manson Airport in Kent. I'm, seriously, never mind all the other stuff. I, I did think, how do you get to be Chris Grayling? If any of you know, please you could tell me later. Uh, I bumped into an old colleague of mine on a train and uh, he, uh, I said, oh, what are you doing? I know you've been based in Latin America. He said, I was in Venezuela. Oh, what was happening in Venezuela? He said, well, you know, the, the riots against the Maduro regime, there was tear gas on the streets, there were tanks, there were militias, there were mobs and so on. And he said, I took shelter um, in a, a cafe and I was speaking on the phone to my bosses in London in English and a couple of Venezuelans came up to me and said, are you British? We hear things are really bad over there. <laughs> <laughs> it's a true story. In, in, in France, as you uh, may know, the, um, they, they, they think it's quite funny that Dominic Raab didn't know that Dover and Calais have sort of links across the sea. I thought that was kind of weird. Uh, and I was also uh, amused to see that one government minister in the Macron government nicknamed her cat Brexit because it can't decide whether it's going out or staying in. I, I said in my family, we've got a lovely dog, an Irish dog, Kerry Blue Terrier, and I said to my wife, I wanted to nickname it Farage because it leaves a pile of poo behind and I have to clean it up. <laughs> that was vetoed. So, but let me, let me, let me get on to what, I, what really worries me. I spent a year of my life on one lie, and the lie was I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That, that wasn't me. I was quoting, Bill, just, just, just in case the Daily Mail's at the back. Um, and I thought, isn't that interesting? Because he almost lost his job, lost his presidency with that one lie. Very public lie. But it's a lie about something that he would not be the only man, or woman actually, who may have lied at some point about a sexual relations, a relationship. Um, and... I thought that is quite interesting, isn't it, how we have changed. Because the current president, but on the 12th of August, the Washington Post calculated, I'm quoting here, President Trump has made 12,019 false or misleading claims over the 928 days of the presidency. That is 13 a day, ladies and gentlemen. Donald Trump is a workaholic. And his lies are so obvious sometimes. For example, he said uh, he'd negotiated uh, the denuclearization of North Korea, which he hasn't, where he said he was against the Gulf War. He wasn't. He was on the record as being for it. He's building the war with Mexican money. He's not. And so on and so on and so on. And the one that really gets me, last Christmas when he tweeted, I'm working hard in the Oval Office. 
uh, when the president is working hard in the Oval Office, you can see the Marine Guard that stands outside. There was no Marine Guard. He was on the golf course. Simple thing. Oh, and he's popular over here. He's very good at saying how popular he is over here. Uh, the New York Times columnist Charles Blow said of this, and you may think it applies to Britain. Donald Trump lies all the time. We know that. Some of us are incensed and disgusted by this. Others have been worn out by it. But few even attempt to deny or excuse it anymore. It has simply become a recognized feature of the man and a predicament for the country. Nobody, in other words, expects the truth anymore. And I think we are getting that way here. I was looking up um, some sort of historical parallels, and I came across somebody called Sir Henry Taylor, who was a 19th century British colonial office statesman. And he wrote somewhere that falsehood ceases to be falsehood when it's understood on all sides that the truth is not expected to be spoken. So Bill Clinton talking about sex, mm, not, he didn't do very well there, but somehow we don't always expect the truth. Or, you know, uh, uh, Churchill said, in war, truth is so precious, she must always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. I think we would go along with that, most of us. If, if, if we actually had to fight a war, we wouldn't expect our leaders to tell the truth. But have we really reached a stage when falsehood ceases to be falsehood that none of us expect the truth to be spoken anymore? And I think we are getting that way. It reminds me, in terms of Trump, and talking about things which are happening right in front of us, and he is saying are not, not true. It reminds me of that, that old Chico Marx joke, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? We know they're not telling the truth. And that brings me on to what I think we can do about it. We've got about 10 or, 10 or 12 minutes left, so let me just do, uh, tell you what I think we can do about it and what we think we need to learn about it. The most infam infamous example here is the lie on the bus, the 350 million pounds a week we give to the EU. As we know, that's not true for various reasons. And Sir David Norgrove of the UK Statistics Authority said that was a clear misuse of official statistics, which is a nice way of saying we were lied to. But it misses the point. I think people who voted leave uh, recognized it was a lie. They're not stupid. They're just, I've got a couple of friends who voted leave. They, they knew that wasn't true. They knew it wasn't true. But they looked at the other bit beneath that, which said, let's fund the NHS. It's, it, it, let's fund the NHS instead. And that touches our hearts. And what strikes me about populists is they're very, very good at touching our feelings. They're hopeless when it comes to facts. They don't even recognize facts and enlightenment values and so on. That's why we have so many difficulties with the anti-vaccination campaign or climate change deniers. In, the, in their hearts, they know they're not telling the truth, but they know they can connect with us by saying things like, make America great again, or take our country back, Those, or let's fund the NHS instead. They are very, very shrewd at sloganeering and very, very clever at it. But we can defeat them in the end with facts and if we understand that we've also get in touch with, got to get in touch with people's feelings. Let me give you one more example. Newt Gingrich, during the last presidential election campaign in 2016, former speaker of the Republican Speaker of the US House of Representatives, very clever man, met him many times, very shrewd. He was on television defending completely unfactual lie from Donald Trump, which was that violent crime in America was going up. 
the CNN presenter said, uh, it's going down. Those are FBI statistics. This is what Newt Gingrich said. The average American this morning does not think violent crime is down. The current view is that liberals have a whole set of statistics that theoretically might be correct, but that's not where human beings are. People feel more threatened. I'll go with how people feel. Now, that may strike you as very similar to a very bright man who is in our government today, Michael Gove, saying, I've had enough of experts. The British people have had enough of experts. He hasn't. And Gingrich isn't stupid. He knows that the facts are against him. But he knows that people have certain feelings about crime, about migration, and about the basic policies which we have been sold or missold over Brexit. There is good news, however. Populist leaders fail to deliver. Populist leader, Victoria Raggi is one of the populists who's the mayor of Rome. She can't even get the bins collected. They fail to deliver because facts and expertise do count. Mr. Trump has not built his wall. Our dear leader has not built the garden bridge despite 53 million of our money being spent on it. He has not built an airport on the Thames estuary. He has not built the bridge between Scotland and Northern Ireland, which I think we will never see. He has not built the bridge, which he also took. What is this, this thing he's got about bridges? The bridge with, with, with France. I mean, what on earth? Seriously, what on earth? But it's very eye-catching, as is the Incredible Hulk, as is the nonsense that he spends his downtime when he's not throwing wine over people's sofas, um, uh, uh, making buses out of, was it cardboard or balsa wood or something? Did you see that? It's absolute nonsense, but it does the same as Donald Trump's tweets, which is why Mr. Trump and Mr. Johnson have a degree of genius. We live in an ADHD world. We're kind of all attention deficit people now, and we're all attention poor. And suddenly, something cuts through. So I can guarantee you more people paid attention, for example, to Boris Johnson's picture with that bull in Aberdeenshire than the bull that he was talking when he said they w Americans would take our beef and we wouldn't be expected to take theirs. They are very clever. Johnson and Farage had the best slogans, take back control, the will of the people, just get on with it. Although we don't know, still three and a half years later, what it is. The Hansard Society, very interestingly, a few months ago, did a survey saying what we need is a strong rule-breaking leader some 54% of our fellow citizens thought a strong rule-breaking leader was necessary to get Brexit done, whatever it is. Now, I would say to you that 54% of British people are not idiots, they're not anti-democratic, but they are being led that way by a bunch of very, very clever people who portray any of us here as being some out-of-touch metropolitan elite. And we have got to not just argue back with facts, and there's a lot of them in the book, but recognize that feelings are also important. We've got to get in touch with the feelings of uh, the wider electorate. If we're going to have a people's vote, which I still think is a possibility, indeed I think it's about the only thing that will get the politicians off the hook of all parties, then we have to make sure we win it and that we win it well. And I do think that's possible. Can we cut out the bullshit? I think we can. Can we call out the bullshit? Can the media do it all the time? It is quite difficult, actually, if you've got a president lying 13 times a day and you've got so many facts that are simply wrong.
But journalists don't get out of bed in the morning to tell lies, most of them. They get out of bed to try to tell a good story. And sometimes their job is very difficult, and sometimes their job is made impossible by the editorial lines of their newspapers. And one of the many things, when the dust settles on this, and we do have inquiries, will be to ask ourselves, why is it we allow so many of our leading newspapers to be owned by people who are not residents for tax purposes? And why is it that, uh, that our television stations and radio stations, which do obey different rules, yes, they try to be accurate, yes, they try to be balanced, but what do they mean by balance? Just as a final thought, I lived in Northern Ireland for a long time, and balance there was you have a unionist and a nationalist, or a republican and a loyalist, or here you have a conservative and Labour Party, and other parties take part too. Balance is not having a climate scientist with some bloke in the pub. Balance is not Michael Gove saying, I've had enough of experts, I'm not going to the dentist when I've got a sore tooth, I'm going to ask the lady in the front row, you're not a dentist, are you? No, that's good. <laughs> It wouldn't have worked if I said it there. Um, we have got to rethink so much in our society, which includes the responsibility of the media, to redefine what they mean by balance when expertise is at stake. And that's why I say that we remain a very, very brainy country. We solve problems. We don't create them. But we have to solve the problem of Brexit so we can get on to talk about something else, because Britain is a lot better than Brexit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, that was really interesting. Um, I am sure you've all got lots and lots of burning questions, so uh, yeah, have a 10-15 minute break to think about how you're going to phrase it all. We're going to get the book set up at the front um, and then you can buy a copy. Books are outside, eh? Books are outside, so please do grab a copy, and I have a spare pen if you need. And uh, thank you. We'll see you back in 10 or 15 minutes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, hello again. Welcome back to the second portion of the afternoon. Um, so I hope you managed to grab a copy of the book. They've only got a, a handful left, um, and they're uh, 8.99. So um, if you want a copy of the book and you can get it signed right here, um, please do so. There's the, he's just outside. He's only got a few copies left. So please do get them while you can. Um, otherwise, you have to wait for Amazon, um, and they're not even ethical anyway. So, <laughs> um, so thank you all for sticking around on such a beautiful day outside. I really appreciate it, and I think that just goes to show how um, how important this topic is to all of us in the room. Um, I have been given some uh, wording to read out from the CEO about the Q&A following quite a heated Q&A at some previous events that we've had here. Um, so <laughs> and I wasn't here last time to keep you all in check, so um, bless him, Bob did his, did his best. Uh, so uh, we have limited time, so we can allow one question uh, rather than a statement per audience member with the only additional response from the questioner to ask for clarification if they don't understand the speaker's answer to their question. Following the member code of conduct for our society, we ask everyone to treat speakers, staff, visitors, volunteers, trustees, it's me, and guests uh, with dignity, fairness, and respect, and to engage in debate rationally, intelligently, and with attention to evidence. Um, so um, I, uh, 
Uh, I hope that it, that it won't need saying, and I do trust all of you to, to be respectful and mindful that there are a lot of us in the room today, and we all have really strong opinions on this topic as well. So please, please do be mindful of that. Um, and yes, so uh, without, I think that's all of the, um, all of the uh, housekeeping that I need to mention for now. Um, uh, Stephen and I will be running around with microphones, so yes, please put your hand up, and then Gavin, if you just point out, do you want to take multiple questions? Or? I don't mind, but... One at a time, it's fine. Shall I, shall I use that microphone? Or if you like. They both work. I'd just like to say that those rules sound great for the House of Commons. So if you could be in the next speaker after Burko. Oh, don't worry. Oh, thank you. Well, we could start there and then move, move to the far left and then... <laughs> Apart from your book, where can we get our reliable information from? That is a very good question. Reliable information has been part of the, part of the problem. I think, look, I think uh, it, what, what, what is interesting to me is that the Yellowhammer report, which I didn't see, but all the stuff that's in it is in the book, and I wrote the book in May. So it, a lot of it is open source stuff, actually. Uh, I, and because nobody was doing it, I did it myself. You know, and, and I, I wasn't particularly smart about it. I just contacted a few people, talked to a few people, but did a lot of research, looked at a lot of stuff and the US Trade Representative's reports. So there is a lot of things, there are a lot of things that are available at open sources. There's also quite a lot of, although you know, social media gets a, a, a bad um, rap because you have to be very clear what you're actually looking at. I've come across a number of things which I find very interesting on social media, including um, the stuff from Open Democracy, uh, who, who publish quite a lot of uh, interesting things. Um, uh, so the, there's plenty of journalism out there if you, if you care to look for it. The problem is that certain newspapers, it seems to me, which they're perfectly entitled to take a political line, but unfortunately this completely colours their coverage. So uh, yeah, I think you know the ones I mean, and I would tend to avoid them, actually. <laughs> um, and and also, also be very... The other thing I would say, going back to that balance discussion I had uh, mentioned before, is when people appear on television or radio from groups that you have never heard of, uh, whose funding is not ascertained. Another thing we can all do, and we need to do after this, is try to persuade the broadcasters that they shouldn't put people on television who simply have an opinion and who come from a group that may be funded. I'm just thinking of the, all those groups from 55 Tufton Street, the IEA, the so-called Taxpayers Alliance. Is anybody a member of the Taxpayers Alliance in here? Do you know, I've been asking that question for a year and I've never come across any. So, I mean, obviously there's, <laughs> we must be really, yeah. anyway, yes, sir. Uh, we're always hearing uh, terrible stories about what can happen if there's a no deal Brexit. I assume that means no deal between the UK and the EU itself. Well, that's quite likely to happen. Uh, so let's supposing that Boris Johnson crashes out, to use the expression, on October 31st. We will then be out of Brexit, but we will then be quite free, it seems to me, to make any deal with any country in the world, whatever terms are mutually agreeable. If that is the case, then all those countries currently in Europe which export stuff to us, medicine, food, whatever, they will not want to stop all their trade instantly. They will be anxious to make deals with us. 
So surely it would be sensible for us, if we're not already doing it, to start a whole series of bilateral deals, which initially could be on the same terms, perhaps later, or well, we've tried altered, it. and we, we've with, tried with it. all the various countries, we're not out of the EU, so we can't do that. No. Once we're outside, mm -hmm. it seems to me we will be free to import or not import whatever yeah. we want. Which country, no, I'd just like to ask you a question, sir. Which countries yes. should we have a trade deal with that we don't have a trade deal with already? Well, I, I'm just thinking any of the countries, we're always told that we will not be able to trade with the European community on the same terms. I'm assuming there must be lots of countries within Europe amongst the uh, 27 who currently Im export stuff to us. No, but which, 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 countries, which countries would well, you like be, to sign a trade deal with that we don't have a trade deal with already through the European Union? I see what you mean. I, well, I think there are other countries. I wasn't, that wasn't, well, which ones, for that example? That wasn't primarily my question. Well, I know but, that, but um, the, the, point, the point is this. We have trade deals with Japan, with yes. Mercosur, Latin America, through the European Union. We have a trade deal with Turkey through the European Union. The British government tried to roll over those trade deals so they could begin on November the 1st. They have failed. It won't happen. Why Japan, Japan, because Japan is not going to give the 60 million people of Britain the same trade deal they've given the 500 million people of the European Union. Turkey is not going to give the same trade deal. So theoretically, we are free to do what we like, but so are other countries. And our major trading partners are in the European Union, and that will lapse. That will lapse immediately. And we will be embroiled in years of trade deals. These trade, the Mercosur trade deal with the EU took 20 years. NAFTA, I was there when it was negotiated, took five years between Canada, Mexico, and, uh, nor and the United States. So, in theory, we are free to do what we like. We are free to jump off a cliff. We're free to bang our head off a wall. But we're not free to get other people to agree to trade deals that are as advantageous as the ones we've got now. Uh, no, I'm saying to you that all those countries that currently have frictionless trade with us will find that the friction starts at the borders when we have tariffs or they have tariffs. So it won't be the same. They will not give us the same deal. Look, right at the start of this, Angela Merkel said Britain has a choice. You can be in the single market or out of the single market. If you're not in the single market, you will not have the benefits of being in the single market. She's been absolutely clear. The EU's been absolutely clear. The people who've been fanning around all over the place have been the British government because they have pretended that we're going to get the easiest trade deals in history. We're not. Yes, and the lady there. So. I'm a bit disappointed as a Brexiteer because I was hoping to learn some points from the Remain camp that I hadn't heard already beyond the usual ad hominem attacks and characterizing Brexiteers as two-dimensional cardboard cutouts, uneducated and... Uh, I didn't do that. Um, I didn't do that. That was the... Could I, ask you what, could I ask you what version of Brexit you voted for? Clean Brexit. What do you mean by clean Brexit? Uh, leave on the 31st without a deal. But hold on, was that, I don't remember anybody saying leave on the 31st without uh, a deal. I, if, if you're truly interested, 
Yes. I I'd be happy to provide you with the documentation because there oh, are lots of clips. Go ahead. I will do. So have, wait a minute. You've got documents do. that say that on no, no, the, the 31st the, of October 2019, let me just we say were going to leave. Let me just say something. These lies, such as the bus, $350 million. Okay, we know that the actual f net figure is a bit more complicated. It uh, requires a rebate based on the figure from the year before. And it's a complex formula. So it's very difficult. So they put the figure... It's not that difficult, they, frankly, they, they, not okay, to lie. So it's not difficult can not I, to can lie. Can I finish? No, actually you can't, because you're, you haven't got a question. And I'm answering your point by trying to find out what kind of Brexit you actually voted for. Because if you're telling us that you voted to crash out on October the 31st, 2019, there is no documentation that said that. None. I, I did. I was perfectly aware that we possibly could not get a deal. And um, that's the answer to your question. Now, if I can finish <laughs> my earlier point, you, you said that 350... I'm trying to finish the question, as usual. Conway Hall is a little bit biased please, please towards the question. radical social movements and free speech. So shout me down and you know make me nervous. It's difficult enough as it is the whole room. Okay, so three hundred and fifty million dollars. The actual sorry pounds. The actual figure being approximately two hundred and eighty million. Would you agree with that? What is your question, Manner? Would that have changed the referendum if the figure, if a more, if a, if 280 million pounds rather than the figure pre-rebate, if that figure had been on the bus, would that have changed considerably no, the outcome of the election? I've already answered that. I point because that was all over the debates. We all knew the would, we all knew the debate would, would about I be that. Able to we've heard we've heard that for three years. Would I? Would I? Thank you for your question. I answered that about 35 minutes ago. Uh, sorry, would, I, would you like an answer? You don't want an answer, okay. You just wanted to grandstand, that's fine. Hello. All right, Hello, the Kevin. answer to the question was the figure didn't matter because people knew it was a lie. As I said half an hour ago, it was let's fund the NHS, which touched the way people felt. And I'm sorry you missed that bit of our conversation because I did talk about it quite a bit. Hello, Gavin. I, I, could you say something more? Could you say something more about um, lies and wording? Because one of the things I've stumbled over is uh, calling it a deal all the time, when actually it's a treaty. It is. It's very, very complicated. That's what, that's what I'm trying to say. And the idea, what has happened is we've gone from. Uh, you know, Canada plus, Norway plus, there's always a plus because it always means something, whatever you thought of, through to WTO rules, do you remember that one? To GATT 24, and now the absolute nonsense of a clean break when what we have to do is sign a whole series of trade deals. And trade deals are, as you say correctly, treaties. And for instance, with the United States, one of the reasons it takes so long is you have to persuade the US trade representative representative, then it goes to Congress, and every member of Congress will have an opinion about a trade treaty, and they will have votes in the Senate. And if those 84 senators care more about the pork lobby than they care about uh, Liz Truss's uh, deal, then it won't pass. That's why it's so difficult. So we can have trade deals very quickly if we give up everything. If we give up 
relatively cheap pharmaceuticals, if we give up the NHS's buying power, if we give up uh, our food standards. I'm not prepared to do that. Yeah, and the lady here, and then... Hi. Um, declare an interest first. I'm a member of a political party that supports um, avoiding Brexit altogether. Um, in, my, in, my, um, in my conversations with people about Brexit, uh, generally speaking, it isn't particularly productive to engage with people on the level of rational argument. It is an, it is an entirely emotional thing for most people. And uh, it's, I think it's quite difficult for people who support remaining to uh, compete with the emotional appeal of leaving to those to whom it appeals. Mm -hmm. I agree um, with and you. And I wondered if you'd got any hints to make yeah. help me get better at that. <laughs> well, I, I agree with you totally, because this lady here is not prepared to accept that nobody in 2016 was talking about a clean Brexit and it would all be easy and it would happen on October 31st, 2019. Well, you haven't provided it. You just provided a bit of a talk. Oh, yes, okay. Well, uh, uh, anyway, uh, I'd like to answer this gentleman's question. Uh, there are some people that you will never get through to, but fortunately, there are a diminishing number of our people. What we have, for example, in the uh, European elections, while it's true that Nigel Farage's party took about 30% of the vote, it took it with less than 40% of people voting, so it worked out at about 12% of all available voters. So there are a lot of people out there who are persuadable. And there are a lot of people who just simply want it to be over with and not talk about it again. And I think those people are the ones who are most persuadable that we will not be able to do it, get it done, because there is no clean break, because they've seen the past three and a half years of nonsense. And I mean, it may be in the worst case that we have to wake up to the slow decline of Britain, which begins on November the 1st. It may be that. I think it will be much sharper than that, and that the facts will eventually affect people's insulin supplies. Gentlemen, if there's anybody here who requires Viagra, now is a good time to stock it up, because 100% of the Viagra is uh, produced in Ringeskiddy, County Cork. There are companies in, in this country, I talk about one in the book, who export goods for blood services all across the EU. They're checked in Belgium, and then the ones that we need come back because that's the most efficient way of doing it in this big economy. They could be stopped at the border, even stuff we produce here. So I hope it doesn't come to that. I know that there are some people, and I've, I've heard them saying, well, maybe we just have to see how bad it is. But I don't want to have to put people's lives at risk. And I think those kinds of arguments do affect people and do impact on them. And I hope we don't have to go through and see how bad it will be before people change their minds. Um, how can we make politicians answerable for their lies? <laughs> well, that is a very good question. Um, we can vote them out eventually, but it does seem, I mean, the interesting thing... Uh, no, they, they've not been voted in, exactly. Uh, the interesting thing is that we've seen that politicians can thrive rather than be discredited as a result of the lies. So it is, it is difficult. I think what we have to do is, all of us, we just have to make it clear that we're not putting up with it. It's been very interesting watching uh, the leader of this country uh, traveling through Yorkshire, and particularly Doncaster, which is, regarded. I was in Leeds last weekend, and uh, uh, 
I know Leeds quite well, and uh, people there were saying we should all go to Doncaster because Doncaster is Leave Central. The Prime Minister, when walking in the streets in Leave Central, Central, was heckled by people saying, you're a liar. Now, I think that's shameful that we have to get to this point, but frankly, I don't believe most of what he says. I'm not sure he believes anything of what he says. So we could start with him, couldn't we? <laughs> oh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. My question was partly preempted by a gentleman down there. The, the contrast you've made between facts and feeling. Now, let's presuppose there's going to be a second referendum, which there may or may well not be. How would the Remain camp, which I'm a member, by the way, I don't want to think I'm a mole or anything, um, but um, <clears throat> how would the Remain camp combat feeling, which you, you almost suggest touches a deep, deeper into a person than fact? You can bombard them with facts, but if you don't touch their feelings, how would a second referendum be any different from the first one? Uh, yes, that's, that's exactly it. And, uh, you know, it's, what, what is interesting is that the slogan, Make America Great Again, is on hats all over the United States among people who support m Mr. Trump. But nobody can think of any four words that summed up Hillary Clinton's campaign because she did not touch feelings in, in, in that way. I think what we have to, I don't know, I'm not in the advertising business, I'm not in the clever people that uh, uh, the Brexit party uh, employs to come up with slogans for them. But I do think that what we have to touch people in with is their fundamental patriotism. I do not mean nationalism. I don't, don't mean this narrow nationalism. I mean the fact that when I said Britain is better than Brexit, I really believe that. We're a lot better than this nonsense. Are you happy with the way things have gone in the past three years? Nobody is. And do you want Brexit over with? Uh, so we have to touch those kinds of feelings, I think. Yeah, but isn't patriotism the, one of the key things which people voted remain as they saw it, to get back control, which, it, which, is, uh, which was the patriotic thing for leave, wasn't it? That was their clever line. Yes. Uh, how can we stress patriotism, which trumps that, if you pardon the sort of unintended pun? Yeah, well, well, I, well I think part, partly, it, partly it is the facts. It is the facts about this will be the end of the United Kingdom, which some people are very happy with, by the way. Uh, many people in the SNP are very happy with it. Many people in Northern Ireland are quite happy with it. Um, but we have to produce, we have to also point out some of the really good things that the EU does for this country. And they are enormous. I mean, one of them, which is constantly underrated, is that we are a nation at peace with our neighbours. And we are a nation that has fought when we are excluded from Europe. We have fought against the Spanish, we have fought against the French, we fought against the Germans, and there was a Cold War against the Russians when we thought there was a danger that Europe could unite against us. And now we are prepared to put all that at risk by imposing our own cutoff from Europe. It is, uh, uh, so, I mean, I think those, those are all factually based arguments which I think touch something, I hope touch something. Well, I'm Dutch, and you fought against the Dutch as well. Um, <laughs> oh, yes, we did. That's <laughs> you did. We want to leave you out, and the Irish. Thank you. Uh, um, my I'm question is, um, why do you think our current crop of ministers find it so difficult to understand the position of their negotiation partner, the EU? So they, they find it difficult to understand? To understand the position where the EU comes from in the Brexit Well, I wonder if they find it difficult to understand, or they willfully pretend they don't understand. You mean, you mean you, uh, the outcome is, is sort of the same. The EU, as that, that quote from Merkel, has been exactly the same for three and a half years that, uh, that I said. Uh, the position on Ireland has been the same 
Ireland was another thing that was never discussed. I know you'll probably find some documents that prove that Ireland was a central part of the campaign, but it wasn't. It was not discussed. And yet it was obvious to any of us, uh, you know, I travelled with the Clinton delegation when this Good Friday Agreement was signed, and it was obvious that anything we do was, was going to put the Good Friday Agreement at risk. It was obvious to my Irish relatives. I've got ones Protestants in the north and Catholics in the south. So um, I can't believe, well, I mean, I can believe that Dominic Raab is so lazy he couldn't read 35 pages of the Good Friday Agreement. I can believe that. And I can believe he didn't really know how intense the transport was between, you know, when he was Brexit Secretary. But I don't believe that the whole cohort of people in power are actually incapable of understanding what's going on in Europe. We, had, we used to have, under Mrs. Thatcher, when I, I, I travelled across to uh, Brussels a lot, we, the best British diplomats were in Europe. And Mrs. Thatcher was always in the room, and she was always a member of the EPP-type grouping, which is the Conservatives in, in Europe, which meant she was always very well informed. David Cameron got us out of that group, and then they have been, I think, perhaps willfully uninformed. But their civil servants know what's going on, and they must have known, and they're choosing to ignore it. There's a lady there, and then somebody over there. You cited the influence of the pork lob lobby in the US. Um, with regard to the lobbies of the various industries in the EU which export to the UK, do they not have some sort of commensurate influence on their governments? Or do you think some governments in Europe will be just happy to sacrifice some of those industries to punish the UK or for some other reason? Well, I, I, I think... I think one of the things that is underrated, to go back to your point, is that the, the British press in particular and politicians speaking publicly seem to forget that EU 27 countries have their own domestic political problems and agendas and people saying things. And I happen to know a, a good example is Tata Steel. You know, the Tata Steelworks, which is owned by an Indian holding company, but Tata, Tata Europe uh, is a relationship between the Dutch Hochhovens, is that right? And, and, and uh, what was the old British steel plant at, at Port Talbot? And I know they have been engaged in talking to ThyssenKrupp about having a deal with, with Germany. And all these things are potentially not going to happen, or they're going to be difficult, more difficult in the future. It's just an added layer. And it is true that uh, European companies lobby their, lobby their governments. Ab absolutely true. But the ball is really in our court. We're the ones who want to, want to exit the EU. We're the ones who've got to come to some kind of deal, and we're the ones who've got to negotiate. Or we can have a, quote, clean Brexit, which is a bit unlikely. Gentleman over there. In the event of a second referendum, a lot's been said about, okay, remain, revoke, um, but also reform the EU. Yeah. In your, in your opinion, um, what needs or what, what could potentially be reformed about the EU which makes it you know, a, a bit of a sitting duck right now or which makes it a target for criticism? Well, I, I, I quote um, von Weizsäcker, the, the former German finance minister, who says it's very odd, the British, because the two things that don't really work brilliantly in the EU are Schengen and the Euro, and you're not in them. Um, and so I think, I think, I think 
von Weizsäcker has got a, has got a point there. Um, uh, um, more importantly, I mean, there are obviously, like, apparently silly things, like dividing the parliament between Strasbourg and Brussels. That's just a nonsense. And it will never be taken seriously in this country unless that nonsense stops. I mean, we wouldn't have a parliament in Manchester and London or Bristol and Leeds or something. Uh, so, so, so that's got to stop. Um, th there's some of the uh, other obvious bureaucratic things that have got to stop. But the truth is, what has happened over the past 20 years is successive British governments have agreed to EU um, uh, agreements about food standards and environmental standards and clean beaches and all those sort of things. And if people disagree with that, they say, oh, it was the EU. Because we haven't really had advocates in this country saying the good things about the European Union and how cheap it is. I mean, the 350 million, let's take this 350 million pound figure one more time. How much do you think we spend every week as British taxpayers on Northern Ireland? 800 million. A week. Now, I'm not saying, because my folks in County Antrim would kill me, <laughs> possibly literally, that that's not, that's not a good deal. Uh, but that just puts it into perspective. That's just on one and a half million people in Northern Ireland, whereas we spend not 350 million pounds a week, much less than that, because it's a confusing gross with net, on the best trade deals, on frictionless travel, as well as trade, and on all the other things that we get, so. I'm curious um, about, uh, there are several levels of conspiracy theory that seems to be about this, and that um, Brexit was almost, uh, if you watch Stephen Fry's YouTube videos, mm -hmm. Brexit was almost engineered in order that certain powerful people who were basically lobbying through um, the various vote leave campaigns uh, could, could get tax advantages for themselves mm -hmm. and, and were selfishly organized. Uh, do you put any credence by those? I, I don't know the details of that, but let, let, me, let me ask you a question. Put, cast your minds back to 2015. Does anybody remember the streets of Britain being filled with anti-EU protests? <laughs> anybody? No. no. I don't remember a single... I mean, there were people on television like Peter Bone who had been moaning about it for years, but there were no anti-EU protests. And then in 2016, to everyone's surprise, uh, the Leave won the... narrowly won the uh, referendum. And a man called, I quote him in the book, a man called Chris Benodi made, I think it was, I forget the figure, 250 million, yeah? Uh, out of betting against Britain. And he's betting against Britain now. And it's interesting that all the people who are really behind the various incarnations of the Leave campaign and the Brexit campaign happen to have a lot of money. And the Brexit party is not a political party, it's a business. And so I don't know about the the tax question, although I do know that if you want to launder money, I'm told this is a good city to do it in. Um, and that will change, I'm told, by 2020. I think it's March 2020. I can't remember when it, when it is, by next year. Now, I, I don't know the ins and outs about individuals or, or anything like that, but I do know that one of the things that is quite extraordinary is the extent to which working people in this country and particularly working-class people in this country who feel all kinds of things are wrong in this country, and I agree with them, have been sold by a bunch of millionaires and zillionaires and people who are not resident for tax purposes that the rest of us are the elite. Now, that is very clever, actually, uh, and we've got to resist it. 
so I don't know the, I don't know the specifics to be honest but but I, th I think I think it's the right ballpark you know who who is to benefit yeah who is to benefit from this um, and I think if there's going to be free ports I think I personally think London should have its own foreign policy because <laughs> we already do for in some ways yes a couple more Hello, Kevin. Um, I, I um, was wondering, what as individuals can we do to make Britain great again? Uh, personally, I'd <laughs> like, uh, you know, to revoke Article 50. I've written to my MP. I've been on marches. I will go on the march on October 19th. Mm -hmm. um, I've been and had a shout at uh, Dan Whitehall uh, with the new MP coming in. But what as individuals can we do to sort of resist... And uh, yeah, it would sort of strengthen the country, get our get our mojo back. Well, I think there's I think there's a number of good things that are happening anyway. One is, as I say, we're all here, you know, because we're all concerned. There will be a lot of people on that march on October the 19th. I hope to be with with with, with that march. Uh, we can write to our MPs. You can write to other MPs as well. You can encourage anybody you know who doesn't vote, who doesn't think it's worthwhile to register. You can encourage students in particular to register either at home or at the university. I mean, it was very interesting that Boris Johnson apparently wanted uh, the, um, uh, an election when students were not at their universities. Uh, and, and students actually can change things. I mean, a lot of them have registered in, the, in, in Canterbury. And for the first time in 100 years, uh, the Conservative who, who was there, Julian Brazier, who was a very pro-Brexity person, lost. So, you know, votes count. You can talk to people. Talk to the Brexiters in your life. We've all got one or two. I've got two very good friends who are both Brexiters for various reasons, one of whom <laughs> spent August in Corfu trying to buy a property. <laughs> He came away disappointed. Um, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't laugh. He's, he's, a, he's a good guy. Um, uh, but talk to Brexiters, spread the word, uh, uh, turn up at meetings, encourage others to, but particularly just say, we just recognize that the tide is moving in our direction, one way or the other. My personal hope, my personal hope is that we get a, a referendum first, which gives the mandate to revoke and then we have a general election. That's what I would hope. But I can see, I can see why the Liberal Democrats are saying, if we get elected, we will revoke, because that would be a mandate. I think the catch with that is, will they get elected? Sure. Hi, Gavin. Hi. Um, my question kind of touches on someone mentioning reform over there earlier. So mm -hmm. the European Union is going to continue to exist after Brexit mm -hmm. happens, if it happens, if we exceed after Brexit happens, back to the EU. Um, my question would be, um, what do you think, is, I'm excited to read your book to see what other European countries are thinking about what Brexit has done to Britain and then what it might do to other countries. So do you think, I was going to link this to um, Yanis Varoufakis' movement where he was trying to get people elected in different countries as to where they were born mm -hmm. in Europe. And as someone who graduated in 2018, I wasn't very happy in 2016 when Nick Clegg was um, propounding the benefits of EU membership. I'd rather it was someone from Europe, to be honest. Do you think there's a place for that? Do you think there are initiatives in place that are going to make Europe stronger that way? That's a good, that's a good question. I, I, I think by reform, I know, I know your question was very specific about reforming the EU, and I, I completely get that. But I think the key reforms have got to be here at home. We are, our political, I think, 
very highly of a lot of MPs from almost all political parties, but I do not, do not think highly of our political system. I do not think having an unwritten constitution is some kind of jewel. I think it's a fudge and a mess. I think the way in which Parliament works has also got to be looked at. Uh, and and uh, we, need, we need really significant political reform at home. I personally am very strongly in favour of having some form of proportional representation, because uh, then we wouldn't have governments like this. Uh, and I'm also, uh, I also think we have to look very, very seriously at the relationship between London, because we're lucky to live here, uh, most of us, and the rest of the country, who, who, who do feel left behind in very many ways. If you, if you get the train out of Waterloo and count the cranes, there are more cranes on the way out of Waterloo than I've seen in Manchester. You know, so we, 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 we've got to do something, something for that. I think, I think there are opportunities, but we can't talk about anything until we get Brexit, which is sucking the life out of us, off the agenda. And it will not be done on November the 1st, even if we leave or not. Oh, we've got... Okay. One, one okay, more. Let's, let's go for... Yeah, the Thank you. How do we rein in the lies that are told in the press? I, I, tell me if this is true, because I've quoted this to a lot of people. Murdoch's on record saying that the reason that he wanted to get out hmm. of Europe is that in Westminster, the politicians are in his pocket and they listen to what he's saying, but when he goes to Brussels, they close doors in his face and that is why he wanted us he, out. He, he did, he did say they listened to him, yeah. And that yeah. is why I think so many people have been influenced by him. And just one thing, that, that a statistic which I hope is true, um, in Liverpool, um, Murdoch papers are not stopped by a lot of mm -hmm. people. And isn't that interesting, out of all those blue-collar northern port-type cities, they were the one strong remain. So how do we stop these evil people from influencing well, 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 so uh, many people? Well, I'll, t I'll tell you something which I think is even, even more revealing than that, actually. You're absolutely right about, about that. But if you look at the Scottish edition of The Sun, <laughs> and the English edition of The Sun, they take very different views of um, Brexit and so on. And in fact, they, they said uh, of Boris Johnson, they had a, something about him being floppy, and it was a, various parts of him were floppy. I can't remember the headline. That was in Scotland, whereas here it was, you know, the proud, you know, uh, flying the flag. The reason I'm saying that is it's about money. You know, Rupert Murdoch didn't become an American because he really wanted to become an American. He became an American because he couldn't own what he owns now in the United States without being an American. We have to think how we do that in our country to stop people who are not resident for tax purposes having such a big say over our media. That's one of the things. And secondly, don't buy the stuff. Just don't buy it. Um, uh, and the reason that the Scottish version and the Irish version of The Sun is very different is because they know their readers wouldn't take it. And so that's what we have to do. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't regret anything of, I, you know, I wanted to do something, and that was something I could do, and I hope to bring out, we did not too badly here, 117,600 votes, didn't do well enough, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, I just want to add my voice to whatever the Remain campaign will be, but I don't really see, I was never, the idea of going to constituency meetings, I have to say. <laughs> Sorry. Um, um, but I, but I, I think I will, you know, use my voice whenever it's, it's possible for anybody within what I hope will be a Remain alliance. Let's hope.
Thank you so Thank much. As I mentioned uh, at the end of the interval, there is still a small number of copies left of Gavin's book if you'd like to pick those up. Thank you all for coming along today and for contributing to a really lively debate. And uh, we'll see you soon in two weeks' time. Ooh.